0: My name is Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a, remarkable. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, we don't often have the Chamber of Commerce speak for us.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh,
0: and I'm a little bit, a little bit hurt by that fact because uh, we're in the same business as Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We can fleece those tourists just as well as you folks. <laughs> I might be able to give him a few pointers on that as a matter of fact. And by the way, Randy, uh, if you're still in the house, I think my room needs some extra towels. <laughs> I've never seen such service like this, but I've been, have felt welcome since uh, Bob first called me. And, uh, it's a remarkable thing to be asked to come to these things and speak. Uh, usually I'm a fill-in. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I sort of specialize in it. Uh, I filled in for a gallbladder once in Corpus Christi, Texas. In Biloxi, Mississippi, I filled in for cancer, which was unfortunate. Um, I think the greatest fill-in I ever did, though, was in um, a thing called the Romp in the Swamp in Waycross, Georgia, where I filled in for PMS. (laughs) uh, uh, Talking about going to any length. And that was a strange territory for me. I never know how I'm going to start these things. So I never know how I'm going to end them. But I'll say this. Speaking before a group of drunks is one of the nicest things in the world that you allow us to do. Because no matter how lousy you are, you're out there pulling for me. You know, and I can just say, come on, come on. <laughs> and you make us feel at home. Uh, I'm not a stranger in northern Arkansas. I've got several ties here, and I... I attended the University of Arkansas and left there in 1964. When I came back this time, I must admit, things have changed. Hell, people, people have jobs now. <laughs> back then, a job was 75 cents an hour in a service station. You were proud to have it. You know? oh, things have certainly changed and boomed up here. I'm, you should have gotten rid of me earlier. <laughs> but I'll get into my story if I can, and if I may. Uh, I was born in Dallas, Texas.
1: Uh,
0: Actually, I was born in a part of Dallas called Highland Park. And for those that are not familiar with that, Highland Park was this area that felt sort of special. It was uh, almost in downtown Dallas near SMU's campus, Turtle Creek. And uh, it was a part of town where you had to have a pass to go into. Uh, When I was a little boy, uh, I just assumed everybody had an upstairs maid and a downstairs maid and a cook and someone that drove the car and a yard staff. Uh, that's the way I, family I was born into. I want to tell you, it wasn't half bad.
1: <laughs>
0: if you've you got your chance, uh, be rich. It's, it's easier.
1: <laughs>
0: my, my father was a geologist, and um, he was born in Salem Springs, Arkansas. Some of you might have heard of that. And uh, But they'd moved out to the West Coast in 1921, and he'd gone to the University of Arkansas until he got kicked out of there, and then he went to the University of Oklahoma for a while, but he got his Ph.D. from Stanford University in geology, and he wandered down. Uh, his father was pretty well fixed, and he'd entered a a um, cross-country road race. They used to have those things back then. You'd start with your rear wheels in the Pacific. And you just choose your route and go as fast as you could until you get those front wheels in the Atlantic, and the first one that did that won that race. Well, he turned over in Threeport, Louisiana. <laughs> wired home for money, and his father replied, "It's time to get a job." <laughs> and um, he got a group of guys together, and they went out into East Texas, and he drilled an oil well. He opened up what is today the Hawkins Oil Field of East Texas, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> When I came along, he had production in 14 states and three countries, and uh, yeah. um, I certainly enjoyed that. <laughs> Early on in my life, I found that uh, if I just was uh, kind to to adults and brought home a few gold stars, the world was my pearl. What an oyster I had, and uh, if I had any talent at all, it was for um, manipulating adults, like uh, I found... That's so all I had to do is bring home those gold stars. And so I took upon that as my, my duty in life. And, um uh, early on I remember the cocktail parties. They did a lot of entertaining. Uh, they were, I was brought up in a loving household. Never remember my father or mother raising the wo- voices to each other. Uh, but on the weekends they'd have these cocktail parties and people would come in. I can remember, uh, had a lot of famous people were there. Uh, Howard Hughes used to be like a regular around the house, you know, and he was just strange, tall, thin guy that wore khaki pants and big felt hats. And they'd have these cocktail parties and everybody would laugh a little more and it, it seemed like they uh, they were just gay and happy and I thought, gee, you know, that's what it means to be a grown-up and I look forward to that. I remember my first drink, uh, it wasn't magic for me. Uh, people thought that The minute they had that first drink, they knew they were an alcoholic. It wasn't that way for me. An umbrella didn't open and the world didn't become magic. But I persisted. (laughs) In the old-fashioned way. I remember the first serious drink I had. uh, I knew it was a serious drink because it had an umbrella and some fruit in it. It had to be serious. But I went through um, grade school and high school, collecting those gold stars and it wasn't a difficult task. I had the facility to, to make straight A's always. And uh, belonged to all the right societies and brought home those gold stars and things were mine. And came that time when I graduated from high school and uh, they sort of had everything planned for me. And they said, uh, my older brother was a geologist, my mother was a geologist, my, bro- my father was a geologist. And they sent me to the University of Oklahoma to become a petroleum engineer. I looked forward to that. I thought, well, I'm grown up now, and uh, I can do some serious drinking and socializing. And went to OU, spent four years there, and uh, managed to get two degrees out of the deal, uh, and a Phi Beta Kappa tea and all those other things. And one of my degrees was in psychology, and the other one was in history,
1: <laughs>
0: which surprised them no end. So I liked college so much I spent eleven years there. <laughs> It beat work, and as long as I brought those gold stars home, the checks poured in. As an undergraduate, I'd gotten married. By the time I came to the University of Arkansas, I had a child. There at Arkansas, I got a master's degree in experimental psychology. and uh, Then I went to Harvard and got a master's degree in mathematics. The only hard thing about Harvard's getting in. Once you're in there you can do anything and be creative. I learned more at the University of Arkansas than all the schools I went to. Went back to the University of Arkansas and got a PhD in experimental psychology. And by that time I was publishing and I was a fair haired boy because I, I had to do this for the gold stars and the checks from home. And uh, when I graduated after all that education and everything, what was I to do? I did the logical thing. I went to college. I had an opportunity to go to Oxford University for two years. I believe I was there while Bill Clinton was there, but he didn't know me, and that was, that was his loss. <laughs> and, uh, I, I was, uh, honored to be a lecturer there, and I did what was called a postdoctoral. So up to then, everything was fine. My drinking had increased steadily over that time, but I hadn't noticed it, but I had acquired a real taste for it. Uh, I was into single malt uh, scotches in um, England before they had even heard of them in the United States, for instance. A little bit ahead of my time, I'm afraid. But there came that time when I just couldn't continue to go to college. And after all, in, in the United States, we don't have some kind of nobility where you can feel at ease not being a productive member of society. So I felt this strange obligation to do something. I was qualified to do one of two things. I could either sell used cars, <laughs> because when you added up all of my degrees, that's what it amounted to, or I could teach, and so I opted to teach. It seemed like a gracious thing to do, and I was, it's an ideal thing to do if you have a little supplemental income someplace, because you really don't have to break a sweat. Huh? Along the way, I'd, uh, I'd published almost 77 times, which was remarkable. In 1963, for instance, I'd been asked to go to Moscow and cover my uh, master's research in psychology. I know you're all familiar with it. (laughs) (laughs) See, to be an experimental psychologist, you don't have to know a damn thing about human behavior, and I do not. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to know anything about white rats or pigeons, I'm your man. (laughs) (laughs) just see me
1: afterwards.
0: (laughs) My uh, my master's research was on the effect of ionizing radiation on bar-thrusting behavior in the white rat. If you pick something arcane and obscure enough that even the props don't know anything about, they can't question you,
1: and that, that
0: was my habit. And I was asked to go to speak to the International Congress of Psychologists in Moscow, and I applied for a visa, and the State Department told me that uh, they wouldn't advise that, that they couldn't stop me. But they were very concerned, but the title of my paper had radiation in it. 63, the Cold War was at its height. And you tell an alcoholic he can't go anyplace, and what does he do? You know, I made my way to Helsinki, Finland. In tourists wasn't operating at that time. You couldn't just go in. From Helsinki, I made it to uh, what at the time was Leningrad, St. Petersburg again now. And uh, from there, I made it into Moscow. And I enjoyed that. Um, but the night before I was to deliver this paper before 4,000 strangers, I was informed that English was not an acceptable language to use. And uh, I told him that my Russian was a little shaky, and I knew five words of Russian,
1: <laughs>
0: all of them for a type of vodka. I hadn't wasted my couple of days in, in Russia. I was learning but I assured them that I could deliver it; that I was fluent in uh, both French and German at the time, and uh, I'd be. And they opted for me to give it in German. I remember writing out a translation hastily, and I got up in front of this august body, and I was so proud of myself. Now, I do not have an ear for language; I can read and write it, but when I pronounce it, I've got horrible dialect. I'm so tone deaf. But I thought I'd done a magnificent job, and I was a little disappointed. I I sat down to half-hearted applause. You know, I thought. They had missed something. I just bring that up because years later, about four years before I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was in New York City at a place called Sullivan's, a bar and lounge not in one of your finer parts of town, and I was indulging in my my habit of occupying bar stools. And I was drinking with these two gentlemen and once again had cause to use my fluent German, and they were confused, and I couldn't figure this out. They were confused, and... uh, but you know the game I'd buy them around They'd buy me around And we'd try to impress each other And after about 45 minutes They got up sort of confused And dazed And left Sullivan's Bar The bartender came over and said Sir what were you speaking And I said Well German, of course And he said They were speaking Polish
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's a strange thing I, At that moment I got extremely depressed You know And I realized I'm losing it And uh it's just a remarkable thing. I remember walking down the sidewalk and tears running down my face. And I'm from a German family where where public displays of emotion are totally unacceptable. In our family, when you got married, it was, you may now shake hands with a bride. <laughs> That's just public. We wanted to be with intimacy of any kind. But I can remember those tears running down my face and I realized I was losing it and that something was happening and I there was no solution for me, no answer. But I digress. I'm back in the United States, two years postdoctoral, eleven years of university, all these straight A's, and member of Phi Beta Kappa and Sigma Xi, and qualified to sell used cars. But I sent out my vita. Vita is a fancy word for the academic word for resume. I sent them out to several universities I thought might be interested in something as magnificent as me. I had a very high opinion of myself, and uh, I attended a couple of professional. Conventions and made myself available for for interviews. And uh, I remember the first one I went on was to I was asked to come interview at the Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. Well, Auburn didn't even have an airport, but I remember flying into Columbus, Georgia, renting a car and fetching out across to Auburn. I got there at eight o'clock in the morning, and it was a real strange experience. I they they had decided. Without my knowledge, they were going to try something new called a stress interview. And I, got, I was told to be at the chairman's office at 8 o'clock. And I showed up at 8 o'clock. You
1: know,
0: still buzzing a little bit from the night before. But alcoholism really hadn't hadn't hit me that hard at that point. Was, uh, I was just a good old heavy social drinker. You know that story. And he said, uh, well, uh, how did you get here? How did you find you? didn't call us. And I said, well, you're on the map. You know, I he said, well, you've got a class to teach in five minutes. And we walked down the hall, walked into this thing, and all the graduate students and the entire faculty's there. They probably learned more about white rats than they wanted to know that day.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it was like that all day long. I remember lunch was nothing special. It was like a greasy sandwich and some pre-sweetened iced tea, which I detest. Finally, at 5 o'clock, he says, you know, the azaleas are in bloom here in uh, Auburn, and it's just beautiful this time of year. Would you like to go out and see the town, or would you like to go to the chairman's house for a drink? <laughs> Some choice.
1: <laughs>
0: Surprisingly, I opted to go to the chairman's house, and after about three or four drinks. You know, sometimes we don't notice how normal people drink, and I was melting these things down. I, I was becoming more expert on the field of motivation and uh, learning theory, and I was discussing my position on all these things. And uh, one of them suddenly spoke up and he said, you know, one of the things we're most proud of here at Auburn University is that we do not allow the sale of alcoholic beverages within a mile of the campus. Well, scratch Auburn. <laughs> I didn't realize at that point how much alcohol was affecting my life, but it was. I remember I had a motel room there. I went and I checked out immediately and I flew back to Columbus, Georgia and got the first available flight out. My next interview was in at Seattle, Washington, at Washington State University. That was nice. And then I went down the coast this is 1966, mind you, and I interviewed at Berkeley. I want to tell you, in 66, Berkeley was happening.
1: <laughs>
0: wow. I don't even think they knew I'd come and, or left, you know. <laughs> we, I think we had about a two- or three-day interview that was just very liquid, as I recall. And they had all kinds of other magic things that I wasn't into. Then I went to Southern California, USC, and had an interview there had all these things lined up, and I almost signed a contract there, but I had one last interview to make, and uh, I thought I owed it to them to go there before I uh, before I made a decision. And I flew into an airport called Moisant Field, and that's in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I interviewed at Tulane University. When I got off that plane and when I got to Tulane, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I'd found civilization. Their drinking laws fit me just fine. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Went to the faculty dining room, had a lovely meal, and they had crafts of wine on the table at no charge. You could just, that's, just wow, at 1.30 that afternoon, I signed a contract to, to teach at Tulane University. They said, well, you didn't ask how much you, you are to be paid. It doesn't matter. The wine's free. Boy, in 66, props made big money. Nine thousand dollars a year, and <laughs> an additional two thousand if you taught summer school. Geez. But I moved the family down there. By this time, I had a little girl too, and we enhanced ourselves in the New Orleans society. And uh, I really enjoyed teaching. I love teaching. It's like entertaining before the class. Hell, the lecture technique went out with the printing press. You could make these assignments, and then you sit there and entertain them and and motivate them. And as long as they were motivated, they would go on and. I became a popular professor on campus, and I taught one year, two years. By 1969, in my third year, I found certain things difficult. See, I'd been doing all this research. I hadn't published in the meantime. It stopped publishing. I was doing all this research, but my research tended to be from one bar stool to another. and It became awkward. I was teaching nine hours a semester, and I'd schedule all my classes Monday, Wednesday, Friday, so I could do research the rest of the time, which I'd really darkened the lab door. My research was just bar stool to stool, And so in 1969, in December of 69, I went to the chairman of the department and said, uh, I'm getting behind in my research and I would like a, a year's sabbatical just to concentrate on that. And he said, well, you haven't been here long enough to be on a sabbatical with pay. I said, oh, I don't want to pay. I just want a year's sabbatical. And he granted it to me. And uh, I've never drawn a paycheck check since. Something that I love so much is teaching. By that time alcohol is so dominating my life and I didn't even notice it. So I never went back. I'm still on sabbatical from Tulane University.
1: <laughs>
0: and during the time when I was in Tulane, based on my past things, I still kept getting successes. I actually step, kept, started getting gold stars and one of them happened to me, a dastardly thing to happen to an alcoholic. In 1968, I received a letter from Sweden and it was from the Nobel Prize Committee. It concerned my doctoral work, which was, I'm sure you're all familiar with this.
1: <laughs> you laugh. <laughs>
0: it was a perception of geomagnetism in Belgian, Belgian homing pigeons. And I'd actually isolated a sense and found a sense organ that they could use as a backup for for maintaining headings. For those that are interested it's a, in the pectin, the organ at the base of the optic nerve and the eye of the... The only other organism you'll find with that same structure is the ocean-going sea turtle that makes large
1: migrations.
0: (laughs) You learned something, here.
1: And uh, I received this letter,
0: and I was so thrilled. Uh, They were requesting reprints of some of my research and some of the original data, which I sent out, and I immediately sat down and started writing my acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize. I've still got the speech, and I'm still awaiting the honor. <laughs> but all of my thinking had become alcoholic at that time, and I took that when I took that sabbatical, I really thought I would go back because I truly loved it. From that point on, I started indulging myself. Within three years, my wife left me. And uh, it was a brutal leaving, too. Uh, she came in with a guy that I'd set up in business, and they were holding hands, and I thought, that's strange.
1: <laughs> and
0: I said, what are you all doing? And she said, well, we're in love, and we're leaving, taking the children and leaving. And the old psychologist came back. And I said, let's be adult about this. <laughs> and I suggested a trial separation. And I went out and got an apartment in a hotel. And uh, the next day, I got hit with desertion papers. And those were at that time um, in Louisiana. There were only two um, two grounds for divorce. One was desertion of your children, and the other was adultery. She should have volunteered for that. But she
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: the thing that thing that it, uh, upset me so much about that is that it, it took about two weeks preparation, and they just played me like a drum. They knew they knew what my response was going to be. They had predicted my behavior, and I was. I tell you, I didn't know anything about human behavior. (laughs) (laughs) I did the only logical thing. I called my attorney and told him and prized him of the situation. and said, I'll gladly grant the divorce, and I said, pay any amount you wish, alimony, but keep the child support to a minimum, because I wasn't born yesterday. Uh, Alimony's deductible. Child support was not. Got to think about those taxes. And off I went to Hong Kong. Seemed logical to me. <laughs> well, I get back in about six months, and I find that alimony is zero. And he was proud of that for some reason. My child support was 1000 per child, which was quite a bit of money back in the early 70s. I remember paying those checks, paying those checks. The final check payment I made with my daughter was 18. She was just about to turn 18, and I wrote a check out for 1000 and my wife said my ex-wife said uh, you know you've been such a brick about all this why don't you just forget that last check and I thought boy if I do that she'll say you know that no good never paid all this child support and I insisted she take it and I felt sort of smug about it and sort of victorious and she left and my daughter says uh, dad and I said yeah she said don't you realize we've been living with you all this time
1: <laughs>
0: it never dawned on me to go back to court or anything And hell I'd been supporting my my husband-in-law all that time <laughs> <laughs> but I was in control well the kids are off in college and things and doing well for themselves and I was all alone with no relationship with anything but the bottle and uh, I found it difficult to do certain things I like to travel and uh, I was having trouble getting on and off of airplanes and sometimes I'd get lost, so um, I did the thing that any reasonable person would do i I hired enablers, you know i I started that whole movement.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I called them social secretaries and things like that, but that's what they were, and they'd get me on and off airplanes and they'd tell me what time it was and and I proceeded to join the jet set, I guess you'd say uh, at least I thought it was the real members of that would always turn and and run when they saw me, but um, I thought it was because they probably didn't have it, something on appropriately or something. <laughs> but the height of my drinking, I was maintaining a residence in uh, London, and one in New York City, and one in San Francisco, a home in New Orleans, and one in Hong Kong. And I literally drank around the world. And I'd like to say that I did that for two or three years and came to my senses, but I did that for almost 20 years. And uh, the last two years of my drinking, my neighbors were so disgusted and Regardless of the amount of money they were paid, they left me. Um, I eventually lost all my other homes because I just couldn't make it there. And the last two years of my drinking were just done pretty much at home, even though all before I'd always drunk in uh, mainly in bar rooms. I just loved bar rooms. There's something magic about a bar room. You could go in and you could sit down and there was that muted lighting, and that lighting's perfect for alcoholics. We look good in that thing. You can play like you got a tan. And the mirrors always had that coating of nicotine on them. You know, it just sort of blurred it up and made you look. And after that second drink, you'd look over and say, my God, look at that devil. You know? And you were fluent, and you were, you were charming, and you were everything. If it had only lasted that way, but you'd have that next drink, and the whole world would fall apart on you. Dead did for me. Uh, I was advised by attorneys and things that uh, I was not to drive. I never got a DWI. I had a driver. (laughs) I was was advised that I couldn't drive a car as long as I was going to drink that way, and they were looking after my best interest. And if my driver got lost, I I had the habit of just falling into the nearest hotel when I knew I was losing it. So I'd, I'd stay in hotels a lot. It was handy, and if I had the car and wasn't drinking or just maintaining I'd park it in one of these parking garages, and, you know, that's a magic thing to have for a drunk, because I never lost my car. I'd just look in my pocket and find the receipt, and I could find my car the next day. It's a magic thing. If any of you ever relapse, just keep that in mind. You'll never yeah. lose your car.
1: <laughs>
0: I remember one time walking down Royal Street in New Orleans in the French Quarter, and I'd come out of the Mont Leon Hotel, and I had that, pulled out that parking ticket, and I just said, boy, this is a new one on me, and I went, and I bar called Sloppy jam I went in there and I gave it to the bartender and I said yeah, John I can't find my car can you help me and he looked at it and I said you know where my car is and he says, yep yeah. and I said where he said San Francisco
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I to this day do not figure that out you know but I did call San Francisco and it turned out to be a rental car which they were just racking away on my American Express and it had been there six months <laughs> 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 but those little things happened and, but I was in control <laughs> My life was manageable. You see, something that happened earlier is my mother and father had passed away, and uh, I had enough money to live out those quims and dreams. But I was fast losing any <laughs> dreams. I'd lost my family. I'd lost everything, and I, I was starting to lose something that was dearest to me. I lost the magic when I'd take a drink. But I'd wake up in interesting places, nonetheless. I woke up one time in a hotel, and there were two lovely creatures with me, both of whom I knew. Both were teachers, and uh, I knew it was sort of it must be morning. I called down to room service and ordered up some breakfast for all of us, and I roused up the gang there, and I said, it's the most charming hotel." Uh, there's a room service order taker had a British accent, and the waiter had a British accent, and they weren't surprised. We were in London. <laughs> and you know I I really didn't know I found out later from I started receiving bills from Harrods Department Store it was Christmas and they said don't you remember you said something about a perfect Dickens Christmas with rum pudding singing in the pot and and I turned them loose with a credit card in Harrods Department Store and said buy your Christmas <laughs> boy I wish that had been there <laughs> <laughs> It must have been lovely. But essentially for 17 to 20 years, that's the way I lived. And uh, I thought people envied me, and I didn't realize they pitied me with just cause. I got down to uh, the moment that um, I can remember my last drink. It occurred in this house in in New Orleans. Uh, I woke up one morning. I didn't know it was morning at the time, because by that time... I've always been a regular drinker. I drank around the clock. I was not a binge drinker. I drank consistent. When I would try to try to go to a bank to conduct some business or something, and I knew that was coming up, in that day I would only drink a quart of Jack Daniels. That was my maintenance. That was to be normal. That was not to shake and to act normally. About three years before I sobered up, I remember a friend of mine was a very devout Catholic. Would always give up something important for Lent and he would give up drinking every year and he said, why don't you do it? And I said, sure, that sounds like a good idea. I don't realize I, in all those years, I hadn't gone a day without drinking. And I gave it up. I remember at the stroke of midnight, I stopped drinking. And I went successfully through 24 hours without drinking. I can remember sweating and shaking and I remember cramping up and being just awfully miserable, but I got to a whole 24 hours I poured myself a drink, and it was like magic. I just calmed down. And I was somehow reassured because I didn't think an alcoholic could make 24 hours without dying. So that proved to me I wasn't an alcoholic. Still had three years to drink. It's time after time, things like that. On the morning of December the 5th, 1987, I woke up. And uh, I couldn't feel my legs. And uh, I couldn't get out of bed. And I panicked. I said, I don't have anything to drink here. I can't get to a bottle. I looked over on the nightstand and there was a half full glass of uh, Jack Daniels there. And I gave thanks to any deity at hand and I took that glass. And I very fastidiously removed the cigarette butt that I'd hit it the night before and I drank it down. And to this day, that's my last drink of alcohol and I hope it will always be my last drink of alcohol. I lay there not knowing whether it was morning or night, a damn digital clock that wouldn't tell me. Now, I knew it was sort of early-ish or late the sun was either coming up or going down. <laughs> but I couldn't tell from my bedroom, and I heard the back door open, and the only enabler that never left me, and she's still there, and the reason I'm wearing clean underwear tonight is uh, my maid from Brazil stuck with me through all of this. And uh, I didn't cry out right away. I didn't want to alarm her in any way. And eventually she came into the bedroom and said, oh, you're still in bed. And I said, yes, I've decided to stay in bed all day today. I don't have anything to do. And uh, it's not easy being eccentric. And I passed all this behavior off as simply being eccentric all these years, even though I didn't believe it. But And she said, well, can I get you anything? And I said, yes, I'd like two uh, leaders of Jack Daniels, please, two courts, whatever. And she left the room. She said, all right. By this time, I realized my sympathetic nervous system was shutting down, and I knew that death was imminent. I didn't have the courage to kill myself, but I could drink myself to death. And I got two bottles just in case one wouldn't do it. I thought one would do it. My concern was I was in such a weak state that I didn't think I could get the top off of the bottle. I was having trouble gripping things, and my nervous system was shutting down. and She brought them back eventually and sat them down. It seemed like hours. It was probably... 15 or 20 minutes and she sat them down and they sat on my nightstand and I looked at them and I I felt comfort the only solution I had there and I thought maybe I can get one whole one down before I die and then there was some commotion and suddenly and I hadn't seen them in four months both my children walked in and uh, my son said "Uh, get out of bed you're going to the hospital talk to me like that (laughs) I was indignant I said no I I don't know why I should go to the hospital. And he says, we think you need help. And uh, I said, well, it's, it's Friday. Doctors won't be in the hospital on Friday. I'll go Monday. I promise I'll go Monday. It was an easy promise to make. I wouldn't be there Monday. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. And he said, I said, get out of bed. And the thing that worried me is I had wet the bed. Pride will kill a lot of alcoholics, you know, and I didn't want him to know this. And he told my daughter, he said, pack him a suitcase. She busied herself with that, and he came over, and he jerked back that sheet. He reached down, he picked me up, and I marveled at his strength. He just jerked me up, ran out the back door, tossed me unceremoniously in the back of a car, and off we went. And then I remember sort of foggily, they were doing all that important stuff that they do to register at the hospital. You know, they took my blood pressure and checked my credit.
1: <laughs> and they were weighing me.
0: And they had this thing, this scale that they actually use in a morgue because I couldn't stand on the scale. And I was in this big sling affair. and They were cranking me up off this table with this thing and got me up. And the nurse said, 105 pounds. And I'm arguing with her. I said, 105 pounds, that can't be. I weigh 185 pounds. I've weighed 185 pounds all my life. She looked up there and said, 105 pounds. I knew that last year that I was existing on empty calories and food would be prepared for me and I would sort of stir it around and taste it. But I was probably getting about half of one meal a day and it was unpalatable. I didn't want it. And I was existing on these empty calories. And I knew I was losing a little weight. I'd look in the mirror and say, well, you're a little gaunt. But, you know, I thought, if I eat Saturday, it'll just blow right back up. So I, Saturday, Saturday, I'm gonna have three good meals. I can understand anorexia and bulimia because we'll they'll they'll swear that they're they're too heavy and they can be rail thin, and that's the way I looked, and I couldn't believe. So the rest of that day seemed sort of confusing and things to me. And I was in this bed, and my doctor, who's uh, lives next door to me, came in, and she said, uh, "Charles, you're awake." And I said, "Yes." And she says, "Well, I've talked to your children, and we think that uh, we need to transfer you for some alcoholic rehabilitation. And I said, why don't you just prescribe me some man abuse to tell me to stop drinking? I'll do that, knowing I couldn't. And at that moment, the only thought I had was there were two bottles of Jack Daniels at home. I've got to get home. She says, no, no, uh, we've talked this over, and we're pretty serious about this. And I said, well, at least let me spend the night in the hospital, and we'll talk about it in the morning. She said, oh, how long have you been here? And I said, four or five hours she says you've been here ten days It took a little wind out of my argument <laughs> so I figure well I'll let her transfer she's just a really rough
1: bitch
0: <laughs> I'll let her transfer me and I'll just escape from the other place I didn't know there were only doorknobs on one side
1: <laughs>
0: so I go to a treatment center and I go in style I'm carried in on a stretcher <laughs> And uh, I started into detox. Twenty eight days later I'm still in detox. They're trying to get me transferred to other hospitals, my vital signs are all over the place. But they hadn't told me. Fortunately, if they'd told me I'd have just died to get out of their way, And they didn't have any they they didn't see any solution finally, so well let's put him in the group. But I'd made real progress. I was into a wheelchair by this time. I was sitting upright. Now I was practicing for my great escape, you know, those two bottles of Jack Daniels.
1: <laughs> and I'm
0: going out, and I could go about five or six feet, and then I'd just be exhausted, and I'd breathe and everything, but I swore I was going to get out of that place one way or the other, and I, I was mobile, I had those wheels.
1: Well,
0: they rolled me down this morning to introduce me to a counsellor. Well, I want to tell you, alcoholics, by and large, make really poor patients. But PhDs in psychology make horrible ones. <laughs> They're gonna take me down to some masters in social work. It's gonna fix me. Boy, I was. He rolled me in there, and he was a middle linebacker football player, big black man. I thought, Ooh, boy. I don't think it's gonna be hard to buffalo him. And he rolled me in. And he said, uh, I thought, well, maybe I can tell him about ball pressing behavior in a white rat or something.
1: <laughs> And he says,
0: uh, how would you describe your drinking? And I said, well, I'm a heavy social drinker. I admit to that. And he said, well, how much do you drink a day? And I thought, he's tricky.
1: <laughs> so I made
0: a calculated thing. I'll just tell him what I do to maintain. Just my maintenance, and that's a quarter a day. But, you know, he's so narrow-minded. He's just like my doctor. He might think that I'm an alcoholic if I tell him a quarter a day. So I said, only about two pints a day. <laughs> you know, It sounded like less to me. <laughs> And sure enough, he was narrow-minded. He said, you've got a problem with alcohol. He said, as far as I'm concerned, that's his alcoholic behavior as I've seen. How dare you, you know, if I could get out of this chair. (laughs) Well, day in, day out, there have been some great treatment centers, there have been some adequate, and there have been some profit-takers, and I'm afraid I was in the latter. I remember week in, week out, I was staying there. I was in treatment 58 days then. it was the same for me. Each time they'd roll me up on Friday after the staff meeting and the head therapist would say, uh, Charles, we've evaluated your case and we think you're making remarkable progress. However, we think you can benefit from another week of our treatment. And that will be $11,500. I would write him a check for $11,500. Week in, week out, it was like that. The... Last time I wrote him a check like that, a substance abuse technician they had there pulled me over the side and said, Charles, if uh, you keep writing those checks, you're going to be here the rest of your life. I thought, oh, that's silly. These people have my best interest in mind. And <laughs> totally delusional, I was. I remember the following Friday, uh, they said, uh, Charles, we think you're making remarkable progress. We think you can profit from another week. Rehabilitation, and by the way, you owe $11,500. So I just said, uh, I'd love to write you a check, but I'm absolutely broke. The following day, I graduated with high honors
1: <laughs>
0: and got my last gold star. <laughs> it was remarkable. Uh, I'm not saying they didn't do anything for me. They did one thing that's particularly unique. They introduced me to a, a wonderful fellowship, and... Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. They also did uh, had a physical therapy department in that hospital, and I was going down and taking physical therapy for three hours every day, and they taught me a lot of things. I had a case that what I had was peripheral neuropathy. I still have it. I cannot feel my feet as I stand here before you. And uh, I've learned to maintain my balance by walking slew-footed. They taught me to walk like a penguin. And they taught me how to maintain my balance by... Using visual cues, but if the lights go off in here, you hear something go boom, <laughs> and I'll need help getting some to my feet again. But it says mild inconvenience. I've never been happier in my life. But it just—if that doesn't come back and within the first five or six years, it's not coming back. I probably have vast brain damage too, but <laughs> I hate to think about that.
1: <laughs>
0: I used to be really sharp. I tell you, I could. I could read a book and then recite it back to you three months later, you know. So school was easy, and that's why I stayed there all that time. But um, they introduced me to this wonderful thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember going to my first meeting, and I was embarrassed because all the other patients had to lift me into a van and take my wheelchair along, and and I was sort of embarrassed by all this. But I got into this meeting, and uh, you did have that twinkle in your eyes. You had that hope, and that, and you laughed a lot. I didn't see what was funny, but you laughed a lot. And I thought, you know, what a splendid thing. What a splendid thing. I could tell you folks needed this program, too. (laughs) But when I'd look up and I'd see those 12 steps, I had the same problem that Bill did. I I kept seeing the word God. And I came from a loving and beautiful home, Uh, a home of logic and science. My parents were very, very religious, and their religion was atheism. I was raised as an atheist, and I think my general position was that I was sort of agnostic. It was just not relevant to my life. I can remember in high school once going to a a thing, a Methodist thing called MYF, and I went with a a friend of mine. He took me there, and remember they fed us, and we got to dance and play games and things. I enjoyed it, and I got home and told them where I'd been, and I I got punished for that because that was barbaric, that was, uh, my parents were pretty firm on that, and so when I looked at those things, I just thought, it's it's perfect for you, and you believe, but I couldn't buy it, I was also advised to get a sponsor, and a a gentleman came with the H&I committee, and I just marveled at your enthusiasm, you would come in and spend an hour with us and talk to us, and tell us things, and ask us how it was going, and he did this, and in his story, he said he had been to Harvard, and I knew you had to get one of these answers. Well, he might be good enough to sponsor me. <laughs> I asked him, and uh, he agreed to it. Sky T. Sky said, uh, How are you doing with your program? And I said, well, I guess all right. And he said, Well, have you read the big book? And I said, Oh, yeah, I've read that. And he said, Well, why don't you read it very carefully and try to understand it this time? And I said, Okay. And so I started into it. But it was that sort of thing. I knew that uh, the program was nice, and I had basically studied a little bit about it. In fact, I went and dug out an old abnormal psych book I had, and I remember exactly what it said in there about Alcoholics Anonymous. There was almost two paragraphs on the subject. And at that time, before the new classification, they said, uh, Alcoholism is a condition of a character defect, a character disorder. And uh very difficult to treat and we find that the only effective treatment is a religious program called Alcoholics Anonymous. It shows what they knew about it. But I finally getting out of this place and I'd made progress to a walker. I was using a walker. I was a little too prideful to walk out of the hospital with a walker, so I got a cane. I was ready to go. I had my few little belongings packed in a an A suitcase had them all in that garbage bag, and I was ready to go.
1: <laughs> and, uh,
0: gonna go home to those two bottles of Jack Daniels. And who showed up but this guy asked the sponsor. I
1: said,
0: well, are you gonna give me a ride home? He says, no, we're going to a meeting. I oh, thought, geez. He had taken a day off work to do this for me, and I was, I was a petulant child about it. And we ended up going to three meetings that day. And I get home, and um, finally, and I go in and look in the bedroom, and those bottles weren't there. And I'd been dreaming about them all that time. I searched the house over. He had left me there, and there wasn't a bottle in the house. I thought, I don't know whether to call the police or not, but I've definitely been robbed. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Clear evidence of that. But I was so physically tired, I went to sleep. I I'll take care of that tomorrow. I'll get some bottles tomorrow. By this time, I'd been dry for over three months. All that money going to the treatment center, and then I I woke up the next morning to a doorbell ringing. Seven o'clock in the morning. I was going to sleep in. I went to the back door with my sponsor with that first step again, get in the car. (laughs) And it went like that. Day in, day out. Now, started it became a contest with me. If I get a few more days, Maybe it'll take longer than one bottle to kill me. Maybe I can get through two days of enjoying drinking until I die. Then it was four months. Then it was five months. And at five months, I thought, geez, five months and they don't have a chip or anything for this. Uh, I need a prize. And so I went down and bought a big old Cadillac DeVille. Oh, it was a Cadillac Fleetwood. That's a big old white thing. And it's because you'd said that you had to change everything about my life and I hated General Motors products and never owned one. So I sort of as part of my new discipline, I bought a Cadillac. <laughs> and I go to a meeting that night. I get in the meeting and you insisted I get a higher power. Well God was unacceptable to me. Primitive and unacceptable. So I had made the group my higher power. I could agree with a little bit of that logic you talk about all of you could sit around and pick up a table easily, and I couldn't budget, all that. And all that was nice. But I was sort of resentful because you had this God that was magical. You had a God that could move mountains, cause miracles. And I had you. <laughs> I, I thought I was getting jipped. <laughs> it was just clear to me. I go to a meeting that night. It was the 449 meeting held in the hospital. Guess what that's about? I go in there and it's a discussion meeting. By this time, I've read all the conference-approved literature. I would gotten to the point where I could just quote your pages off of it, and I knew that I was brilliant in doing it, because every time I'd finish sharing, people would say, well, just keep coming back. I figured you needed me.
1: <laughs>
0: I might speak a few languages, but I didn't speak AA.
1: <laughs>
0: didn't understand. And that night, the moderator, the chairman, was talking about the higher power. I don't know whether you religious nuts can understand this and what it sounds like to some supreme intellect like me, but John would chair and he'd say, my higher power, whom I choose to call God. Like if you don't call it God, you're some kind of ninny, you know. And then Mary would say, my higher power, whom I choose to call Jesus. And they seem to get such delight out of this. I'm sitting around saying, God, you're my higher power and you're letting me down. It went around like that all night and when it came my turn I refused to share. By God I was I was irritable and discontented and I said, uh, after it was over finally it seemed like it last an eternity. I went outside and everybody said and the one thing I really liked was the meeting after the meeting. I understood pie and coffee. And they said, Charlie, let's go to Shoney's or Denny's or someplace and I said, No, I'm a little tired, huh? I think I'll go home tonight. I didn't sleep well last night, and I haven't eaten much today, and I've got to go home and eat some Inture Pluses.
1: And, uh,
0: I was on a diet of that, four cans a day. By this time, I'd bloomed up to 135 pounds. I weigh 145 right now. The doctors assured me that once I digested my fatty tissue on the way to 105, I started digesting muscle tissue, including large parts of my heart muscle and things, and I'm not supposed to be here, but... <laughs> And I thought, well, I, I owe myself a real treat. I've been sober five months. I've put up with these ridiculous AAers. I think I'll go across the river. This is on the West Bank of New Orleans, the West Bank. I have to go across this big bridge, the Greater New Orleans Bridge. And I'll just go down to the French Quarter and have a nice late meal, and it's about 9 o'clock or so, and the restaurants really don't start popping till then anyway. So off I go. I fire up this big, ridiculous, long white car. And I work my way around the peninsula there to go up onto the bridge ramp, and I start up the bridge, and you know how chamber of commerces are. You just saw, they're really enthusiastic about things. They always had these ridiculous signs. I'm going on the longest, highest, double-cantilevered bridge in the world there. I'm, <laughs> I'm starting up that thing, and a loud voice comes to me, a booming voice, and says, 49. And I'm thinking, what are the bridge police doing? on oh, their loudspeaker?" loudspeakers. I look in that rearview mirror, and there's nothing there. I look around. The radio's not on. It's just, there's no one around me. traffic's traffic abnormally light? I drive about a 100 yards more, and I hear it again. This time not as loud, but it's 49. And I felt the cold sweat pop out on my forehead, and I, I'm having an auditory hallucination, clearly. Uh, I think, well, I've gone over the bend. I'm, I'm totally psychotic now. <laughs> completely spun out of control. Never heard it again, but I heard it very distinctly. I mean, boldly. And if you're going to have an auditory hallucination, shouldn't it be something fun? I mean, 49, what is this? I not <laughs> I, I drive on across the 2.2 miles across that bridge. I take the first available exit. That's Camp Street. That's so symbolic, but Camp Street, the street of all swinos. I'm heading down Camp Street, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm just starting to talk to myself out loud, and I, so I don't hear voices, and I'm saying, if I go into the quarter, I'm going to walk into one of these places, I'm going to have to tip the Maker D a lot because I don't have reservations, and he's going to say, look at this loser, he doesn't have a date or even a partner, and I'll sit by the kitchen, and I don't know what to, and I look up, and I see the Sheraton Hotel, like his tall phallic symbol beckoning to me, now.
1: The solution
0: came to me right away. I crashed there among other hotels. I'm familiar with lots of hotels. And uh, I said, I'll just check in, get room service, have the stakes and up, watch a little TV, get a little rest. I'll go home in the morning and everything will be all right. That'll be fine. And I I can work through this. I can work through it. And I'm starting to get, I made a decision. I'm starting to get excited and breathing hard and, I'm driving down and I finally get to Canal Street. Nice broad street and things are sort of, all of a sudden lights are brighter than normal and it's a, it's an all night town anyway and there's families out walking on this thing at that time of night and things, but it was busier than usual and everything was sort of like neon electric, It was like blue electric. It was just, and I'm sort of excited and I, I don't know what the deal is and I, I hook a right there on Canal Street and I have to drive about a half a block up to drive into the drive in Registry at this Sheraton Hotel. So I turn right there, and I drive in with this car, and a valet parking guy comes up, and it's real busy there, and people are going in and out, and he comes up, and uh, I tossed him a $20 bill. I remember that. and said, take good care of this car. And I start into the side door into the lobby there, and I walk in there, and, you know, the big electric door goes, Do-do-do. as I walk in, take about two steps in there, and I just stop. And at that instant, it just came to me, I remember what 49 was and the significance of 49. 49 dollars at that time was the cost of a liter of Jack Daniels at any Sheraton International. And I knew I was relapsing. I knew that there was no stopping me now. Five months I had to come that time to see how many bottles it takes to kill me. And I get the picture of this lobby. It's an expansive lobby with polished oaken floors. And off to the left are all these Persian rugs and overstuffed leather settees and things sitting around, and the registration's over there, and everything's sort of brass and sparkling, and there's like a mezzanine area with a big pod on it, and it's got two big grand pianos that play those CDs, you know, and I swear it's Gershwin himself up there, and it's Rhapsody in Blue playing. And to my right is this large atrium with a huge bar in it, and they've never been gayer the laughter and the little thing laughter, and I swear I could hear the ice cubes rattling in those glasses, sounding like fine barbarian crystal. And three days before, I asked my sponsor, I said, this is ridiculous, this thing that we're not going to have any defense at some time against the first drink. What's wrong with logic? And I realized I was having that relapse, and I said, what do you do when you come to that time? And he says, you redouble your spiritual efforts. And I said, redouble your spiritual efforts. I said, "Uh, what does that mean? He says, it means you double your prayer. You pray real hard. You contact your higher power. I thought, that's fine. But my higher power is having coffee and pie at Shoney's restaurant. So I needed the next best thing. I borrowed your higher power. I'd said the frenzy prayer and the Lord's prayer just to fit in, not to stand out and try to blend in. But I'd never prayed in my life. And I said my first prayer. And I'd like to tell you it was something really elegant like the the Serenity Prayer, something really noble like the alcoholic prayer. All I had to say was, God help me. But instead I said the prayer of a spoiled child. I said, All right, God, if you exist, you'll stop me. And that was it. But I said it out real loud and people in the lobby stopped and turned around and looked at me. And realizing how important I was, I didn't know whether the ground was going to open up and swallow me whole or a lightning bolt would come down and strike me dead. But it had to be something important, right? <laughs> and nothing happened. And so the yoke of responsibility was lifted. The decision had been made. I was going to relapse, and it was nice knowing you. And I strode across that lobby like I owned it. And I got to the registration desk, and I had the velvet ropes up. And I had to wait, and I'm getting impatient. And there's three people registering people. it you know, it's 9.30 by now, and why is it so busy? Why didn't these people get here earlier? Why aren't they in their room?
1: <laughs>
0: Finally, it was my turn, and the middle gal looked up, and she said, next. And she had that frazzled look of someone that had just pulled a double, sort of matted hair and a little bit wrinkled forehead, and I walked up, and I was ready for it. I threw down not a green and not a gold, but a platinum American Express, and I laid a gold... Carried preferred card on top of that and said, "I want a room on the forty-second floor." The reason I wanted the forty-second floor is because it's the floor of all suites and they have a private bar to keep you riffraff out. Out and you drink free in the next morning. Free? Hell, probably no telling what those drinks actually cost. But and uh, he looked a little puzzled and said, "Look at that name." And looked at her. He said, uh, "Sir, do you have a reservation?" I said, "No, but these are my credentials." And she looked at me and she said, "I don't know who you think you are." But there's no room at the end. And a feeling came over me of warmth and surprise. And I didn't even know what to label that. And I stood stood there for a moment and I said, You know what? And she said, What? I said, There's a higher power and his name is God. (laughs) <laughs> and without hesitation she reached down and picked up a house phone and said give me security I got a live one it's the front desk
1: <laughs>
0: I grabbed those credit cards and I headed out of there the guy was just getting ready to park my car and I said wait a minute I couldn't get a room isn't it wonderful and he looked at me like Geez. and I tossed him another $20 and I just tell you that to tell you that's the last alcoholic behavior on my part I've learned to be as cheap as the rest of you <laughs> That's not true. You're the most generous people I've ever seen. I've seen a guy give his last $5 to someone that needed it, you know. That's real generosity. That's real love. That's real caring. That was a lot more important than $20 out of my pocket. But I got in that car, and I headed back across the bridge, and I got to Tony while they were working on that third cup of coffee. I didn't say anything to anybody. I just sat in this rosy feeling. And for three days, it was like that. And then it dawned on me I hadn't even thought about a drink of alcohol. It had just magically gone. And I call my sponsor, and I get him over there, and I tell him this wonderful story. And he says, I wouldn't tell anybody about that for a while if I were you. (laughs) I said, why not? And he says, we've got work to do. He says, we've got to work on your ego. Ego deflation at depth is one of the purposes of that big book, and let's get into it. And he said, by the way, give me your credit cards, all of them. And I gave him all my credit cards. He chopped them up. Sponsors do wonderful things. But he didn't just stop at that. He carefully took each one and wrote the company questioning their sanity for extending credit to a low life like me. (laughs) Before he got through, he'd so wrecked my credit that the flight company was giving me three days to pay or else they were going to turn it off. He took that car and he says, there's a bridge house here that needs, it's got a big raffle coming up and he says, you're anonymously going to donate that car to the bridge house and I did and he went down to buy me a car. He says, Did you like that Cadillac? He said, I hate General Motors cars. He went and picked a nine-year-old Chevrolet that was rusty out. He said, you got to promise me you're going to drive this for three years. Okay. I said, I'll do anything. And uh love that man. When I had nine months of sobriety, he died. Two days before that, he said, Charles, if anything happens to me, I'll give you 24 hours to get another sponsor. And I said, nothing's going to happen to you. Why should I do that? And he says, because you can't manage on your own. You need the help. Six hours after he died, I picked another sponsor. It's been like that for me. It's been a grand adventure. One of the ways that I'd stayed sober in that five months is he made me feel important about certain things. At some meetings, he said, you know, they don't have enough ashtrays. Can you pick them up two ashtrays and bring them next Thursday? I'd go buy two ashtrays, and i think this is so important. You know, they couldn't get along without me. And I'd show up on Thursday, and I'd set them down, and I'd think to myself, now I can drink. I've done that if I'd had a drink, I might not have been there with that. But he always had another little job for me to do. He just suckered me into that thing. (laughs) And the last place he left me was at an H&I committee meeting, and I was assigned to go to a prison meeting. And I started doing that,
1: and uh,
0: I carried the message into prisons in the state of Louisiana. I'm proud to say that I've been in every prison in that state. And uh, they're four and 500 miles apart, it seems like sometimes, but... uh, I go to Angola, which is the third oldest prison group in the United States. Uh, we beat your state prison by one year. <laughs> but Warden Duffy didn't start them in California at San Quentin until 1943. And that was a real experimental thing and it started opening up. At the, after World War II, it started opening up for other states and we were early on there and we were the third one. And the sober group of Angola Welcome to you and my home group thanks you for getting me, me off their hands for a while I belong to the Strange Camels group of Slidell, Louisiana we meet on Monday Wednesday and Friday and you're all welcome we meet promptly at 7.07 because we are the Strange Camels <laughs> we meet over an ice cream store not a modern sort of mall type but an old old ice cream store that has been there 90 years and uh, we advise it's a strong suggestion it's not a must, but most people comply with this that you have a scoop coming and a scoop going and that's sort of been my experience since that time. I've had a scoop coming in and a scoop going. I got involved actively in service, and strange things happened. The next thing you are, know, you're a GSR, and I didn't even know how to spell it. You know? <laughs> I was amazed that others did. And I was a DCM, and I was active on the committee work and things. And with seven years of, of sobriety in 1995, I found myself going to New York City to be the delegate from the state of Louisiana. For the conference, magic things happened up there. It was beautiful. Why, well, uh, in '95, I found myself in San Diego speaking to the international convention. Uh, the subject they chose for me to speak on? I Don't laugh. Humility.
1: <laughs>
0: progress, progress. I made a little progress. Wonderful things happen. I remember at the, at the conference, uh, I opted to stay over a day or so, and uh, I was pretty exhausted, and I thought, well, I'll stay two days and try to rest up before I go home because cardiomyopathy and <laughs> peripheral neuropathy slow you down. And Sunday afternoon, about 1.30, I suddenly realized what I need is a real meeting. And I called the intergroup office there, and it was still in the old flat iron building at that time, and I said, do you have a, a meeting near the hotel? I'm at a hotel, and do you have a meeting uh, near Broadway and 49th Street? And he says, well, we've got one that starts at 4 o'clock, but it's about 8 blocks from you, and it goes through sort of a, a rough part of town, you're from out of town. I said, yes. He said, well, I wouldn't advise you to walk down there. I said, well, the weather's nice and everything. He said, where are you from? I said, New Orleans. He says, hell, you can walk down there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that
0: gave me a... a street-wide
1: pass.
0: I'm walking down there and, you know, you get that sort of feeling of deja vu sometimes and I'm getting closer and closer and I'm pacing myself. I walk a block, stand on the corner like I've got something to do to catch my breath. And I finally get to the place and it's the third floor walk-up and it's got a circle and triangle and it says ring bell. And I hit that buzzer and heard that door pop. And I opened it up and I'm starting to walk up the stairs. I look over my right shoulder and there on Eighth Avenue over my shoulder is a place called Sullivan's Bar. Where four years before I came into this program and wasn't ready for it, I stood out there for at least forty five minutes with tears running down my face and the answer was across the street. It's just remarkable these coincidences that occur. Your life becomes full of these and I've even seen two atheists sit there and talk and one of them will say to the other, Isn't that amazing that's a God thing? and the other one says it certainly is
1: <laughs>
0: It's just remarkable. In San Diego, uh, you know, the interesting thing about those international conventions is that they don't last as long as this one. They start on Friday night and they're over Sunday at noon. And you think, we've been waiting five years for this and it's over. And you know, you can imagine how you feel if you flew in from Belgium on one of their two 747s. You know why they had two? One smoking, one non smoking. You know, a good group of (laughs) AAs. And, uh, I stayed in the Uh, Certainly not the headquarters hotel, I was around the corner around the bay in this twin Holiday Inn thing. There was lots of rooms, and, and I was fortunate to be there because there were delegations from all over the world there. And they didn't understand the smoking laws of California, but who does? And the hotel finally gave up and opened a room about this size off the lobby and said, if you'll just go in there and smoke, we will ignore it. And they supplied some buckets of sand in it. And there were some chairs, and it formed a big circle in there, and people would just meet at all hours in there, coming and going, and share with each other. Well, Sunday afternoon came, and because San Diego is not the largest transportation center in the world, a lot of people were leaving the next day. Some were even leaving Tuesday, you know, to get everybody out, particularly some of the foreign visitors that were there. And uh, someone said, let's have a meeting. And there must have been 200 of us in that room. We formed this big circle. And we said each person would share for two or three minutes. And then we'll go to the next. And we started, I remember we went counterclockwise. And I, I commented at the time, that's so typical AA, you know, we never want to do anything in a normal way. And the first person that started sharing and trying to share in English, and she was from, uh, she was Belgique, and she was trying to share in, uh, English. And someone said, no, each use your native language. And then she shared in French. And I was pleased that I could understand her. Thanks to since I sobered up, and and it went around the room like that, and you'd hear German, and you'd hear Dutch, and you'd hear Swahili, and it went around, and it got to the group that the Japanese all sitting together, and they started sharing, and every now and then you'd hear this strange word, and it was sobriety, sobriety, I just, I said, is that really sobriety, and they each shared, and it finally got completely around the room, and we'd spent four hours in there sharing. It was over and everybody stood and said the Lord's Prayer in their own language. And afterwards I went up to the interpreter that the Japanese had brought along with him and I said, pardon me, uh, did I hear the word sobriety? And he got very, very excited, very excited and he said, ah yes, we use your words. We use your word. And I said, why? And he said, we don't have a word that means that. So I asked the obvious question, well what does it mean? And he looked at me sort of like, he said, well, I'm sober with peace, of course. Sober with peace. What a beautiful definition of sobriety. And I share that with you tonight, in which all of you that exactly. To be sober with peace. And you can't ask for more. I remember getting on the plane there in San Diego to fly back, and and uh, sort of said a strange thing. said, uh, Would everybody that's a friend of Bill Wilson please hold up their hands? Now, how often do you hear that on a plane? <laughs> Remarkably, everybody on the plane held up their hands. She said, well, I'd like to welcome you aboard United Airlines closed flight, flight of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Your captain, <coughs> co-captain, first officer, and all the flight attendants are also friends with Bill W. And just, things just went and happened. And I turned to a little gentleman sitting next to me. And uh, I said, well, you're a friend of, Bill Wilson. He says, Yes. And he says, Most wonderful coincidences have happened all week. And he says, I'm so proud. I know I shouldn't be, but I'm so honored. I've just been elected by the conference as the Southwest Regional Trustee. My name is Raul Marin. And he said, It was the most amazing thing. He said, I was in the Marriott. He was in the headquarters hotel. I was in the Marriott. And he said, I was buying coffee and he was so delighted. He said, you know, coffee was two dollars and they lowered it to dollar. We were drinking so much and they made enough money anyway. He said, wasn't that nice of him? I said, sure was. <laughs> he said, I got this coffee and I turned around behind me and there was this mountain of a man. And he says, I try Mike. And he said he was from Australia. And he said, it was a huge man and his name was Trevor. And he said, he said, I had the pleasure of pulling your name from the hat at the conference where I was a guest of your conference this year. I'm the general manager of the general service board in, in uh, chairman of the general service board in Australia. And Raul said, isn't that the most amazing thing you've ever heard? And what a coincidence. And I said, Raul, you don't know what a big coincidence it was. I said, in the first place, it wasn't a hat. It was an ice bucket. And I had the pleasure of holding that. Um, Sally Bartell, panel 45, Area 27. And it's so remarkable, you know. And uh most of you know that Raul passed away about a month ago. And uh, he was so pleased to be the Southwest Regional Trustee, and I was pleased to have met him. And I've probably talked way too long, but I love you and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Eureka Springfield.